We are so glad to be able to meet together, and I know it's not optimal, but um, hey, the Lord's given us great technology and opportunity to meet together here, and uh, we'll miss being together, but we'll make do during this time. Um, I wanted to make sure that everybody was kind of on board with what we're doing and uh, in line with what's going on with the coronavirus and what the governor and the mayor and even uh, the president has asked us to do. We want to try to uh, comply with that. And uh, we want to do this not because we're simply uh, afraid we're going to contract this disease, but we want to do our part to help the spread of the disease not to be so um, um, fast, I guess, to slow it down a little bit so it doesn't overwhelm the health system and all of that. So we're trying to comply and do our best to do that. And thank you for understanding and uh, for praying for us. And during this time, uh, we're going to need some things from you. Stay in close contact with one another and uh, watch the website. The newsletter will be on there and we'll keep you up to date with things like that uh, that are going on in Facebook. Um, in any other way that we can, we'll make sure that we get that. And uh, just know that we love you and we're trying to do our best to stay together as a church. Uh, continue to give your offerings. We're going to need that. And uh, be sure and invite friends and family members during this time to maybe tune in to our live stream. Sunday morning we'll be live streaming from the auditorium. Uh, it'll be empty, of course, or virtually empty. And uh, we'll be doing it during the regular service times. On Sunday evening, I'm going to pre-record a video like this one, and we'll go over the Sunday school lesson so we can all keep up to date on that. And then um, on Wednesday night during our church time, we'll continue in our series in the Psalms. And so uh, stay up with us, and uh, we'll be praying for one another and praying that the Lord keeps us healthy. And also, uh, if Romans 8.28 is still in your Bible like it is in mine, then that means that even this time where there's economic uncertainty and when there's uncertainty in terms of this, this virus and all of that, even the way we do church, if it is true that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose, then we don't have any choice except to ask God to give us the creativity that we need, to give us the eyes that we need to be able to see opportunities instead of just the negativity in this. And I was thinking the other day, this might be a golden opportunity for us. In the uh, Bible, it says that we're to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And as we see this world where people are panicky over toilet paper, for crying out loud, and when they're uncertain about what their jobs are going to do or what the economy is going to do, and if you've got any money in the stock market, you already know uh, how low those things can go. What about if Christians could take precautions, take things seriously, we don't live in denial and we don't want the world to think we're just walking around with our head in the clouds and we don't really know what's going on. No, we use common sense and we take things seriously. But at the same time, they can see that there's a different look in our eyes. There's not the fear, there's not the hopelessness, there's not the bewilderment. And the reason we have that is because of the hope and the promises that we have in God. And if someone comes up to you and asks you, how can you keep from panicking? How is it that you are calm in the midst of all of this? Then give them the reason. And that reason is about Jesus and the Word of God and the promises of God and the providence of God as He takes care of all of us. 
And it may be that some people who wouldn't listen to you last week, they may be a little bit more willing to listen to you this week. And so let's uh, take advantage of this. And the Lord may teach us some things. He may show us some things that are more of a priority. Uh, one of the things that also came to mind is that some people might say, well, you're shutting down the church. No, we're really not because the church is not a building and it's not a service time. The church is people. We are the church. And so the building may be shut down, but the church is not. And there'll be all kinds of opportunities to pray and to minister and to serve. And we'll just have to keep our eyes open and the Lord will direct us. So uh, keep in touch with us. If you need anything, give us a call. We've been coming into the office here. And if there's some area of ministry that we can perform, or if you hear of somebody that is sick, maybe with this virus, or maybe just flu, or whatever it might be, uh, we'd like to know. And so we pray that you would uh, be used by the Lord, and that also we can be used as well as you inform us on things that you find out or things that you're going through. And so, uh, again, thank the Lord for the technology that we can use to work together and to stay in touch. On Wednesday evenings, we've been going through Psalms, and last Wednesday, we started a three-part series in Psalm 51. And you remember, this is the psalm that uh, David wrote after he was confronted about his sin, that adultery and the subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. Now, David's been covering up for about a year and uh, now Nathan the prophet has confronted him, or actually I guess we should say God confronted him through Nathan the prophet. And David has now pouring his heart out to the Lord, getting right with the Lord. And uh, we learn an awful lot from this because in David's um, life during this time, we can tell by what he writes that his health was suffering. In Psalm 32, he writes about that. We also know that just mentally and emotionally and spiritually he was way off because he even asked the Lord, make me to hear joy and gladness. I wonder how long it had been since David really worshipped, since David was really happy. I wonder how long it had been since David really had any kind, uh, a sense of, of balance in his life. I get the feeling that he was terrorized, that he was afraid, that the fear of discovery was always looming before him. In fact, he said, my sin is always before me. And I think the consciousness of his sin and probably the fear of discovery was just paralyzing to him. And so when he finally gets it out and when he finally confesses it, he says, make me hear joy and gladness. He'll say in another part of this, restore to me the joy of your salvation. This was a rough, rough time, but David is now getting it right. And David has lived a very selfish life for a significant period of time. I mean, let's face it. David was not thinking of anybody but himself when he saw Bathsheba bathing. And he wasn't thinking of anyone but himself when he had guards dispatched to bring her to the palace. And then he committed adultery with her. When she comes back and tells him the news, I'm pregnant. What is David going to do? Well, in our day, we might murder a baby just to cover it up. David did something else, but it's very much the same. He murdered a husband. And he tried to set everything up to cover his sin, and it ended up in Uriah's death. David was doing nothing but pleasing himself at this particular time. 
And if sin is defined as selfishness, uh, living in the flesh and living for self, or as Paul put it, is falling short of the glory of God. In other words, no one matters except us, and we'll do whatever it takes to preserve us. Well, that's what David had been doing, and that's how he was living. Now, as we uh, move down in this to the second part, we're going to talk about God's desires for his children who sin. And we might think of God as being displeased and angry and all of that, but his will for our lives doesn't change. In Romans 8, 29, it says that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And even when we rebel and sin, when we're wrapped up in selfishness, unaware of what God thinks and not caring what he thinks, frankly, his plan doesn't change. He's an unchanging God conforming us to the image of his son. And he's doing that in David's life as well. And so David makes a statement in um, verse 6, and there were uh, some words that jumped out at me. He said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And that uh, those two words, you desire, you desire. David is finally getting to the point to where he realizes this is not just about him and what he wants. He's had a revelation, some people might say an epiphany maybe, that he is seeing this whole thing in light of God. This is sin in the eyes of God. It has horrible consequences. And uh, David and his family are going to pay for this dearly, reaping what they sow. But at the same time, God's desire, God's desire... For the first time in a long time, David cares about what God wants. And for you and for me to really glorify God and to enjoy the blessings of salvation and to have the joy of the Lord in our salvation, there has to come a part where day by day we become more aware of what God desires instead of simply what we desire. Sometimes I find myself when I pray, I'm pouring my heart out to God and it's a whole lot more about me than it is about Him. And I think sanctification is not denying the desires that we have. The Bible does say you have not because you ask not. But focusing on a higher plane, a higher level of things. Why do I want God to answer my prayer? So I can get what I want or have an easier life? Well, that certainly may be a part of it. But as I grow in the Lord, I want what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. There's a higher thing that we shoot for. If sin is falling short of the glory of God, then walking with Jesus and being under the blessings of Jesus and bearing the fruit of the Spirit must be that we focus upon his glory instead of living a life that constantly falls short. So as we read this today, uh, we're going to take a few verses and we're going to talk about four things that God desires in the life of sinful believers. For all of sin that comes short of the glory of God, we still sin and we're still dealing with it. And that doesn't change the desire of God for his children. And the goal is to get us, our desires, to match up with his. Because if we want our life to be pleasing to the Lord, we have to desire what he desires. Now, if there's a difference, understand that an unchanging God never adjusts to us. It's we who must be adjusted to him. We are the ones 
who must change, and that's what sanctification is. And God is an unchanging God who never needs to change. And so may the Lord bless us and change us as we read these verses. And it says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The first thing I notice when I look at that is God's desire for purity where it really matters. I want you to think about that. All of us can put on a mask. We can all put on the the so-called robes of righteousness like Pharisees. And we can walk around like everything's okay. We can have a plastered smile on our face. We can have a bunch of cliches that we live by. And we can answer other people with an with a insincere cliche about how we're doing because we're afraid people will really see the real us. Now when we are thinking about our relationship with God, you already know this, but remember that God sees the real you, the real me. And he's the one that knows every motive, every thought. He knows everything that is um, working in our life, why we're asking, why we're doing, why we're not doing, all of those kind of things. And David, consider this, he had been a hypocrite now for well over a year. Because don't think that because David did these awful, horrible things that he quit going to the tabernacle, that he quit offering sacrifices, that he quit leading in prayer, that he quit singing. All of those things were going on, except they were empty and they had no joy and there was no gladness. This, after all, is the man who wrote in another psalm, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, that's David when he's right with God and walking with God, a man after God's own heart. Can you imagine what it was like when David no longer heard joy and he no longer heard gladness. And that's the condition of so many of God's children and it's a sad thing and God desires better than that for us. And it all comes from having truth where it really matters in the inward parts, that place where only God can see. Someone said that character is what you really are when no one is looking. Well, let's understand something You're never in a situation where no one is looking because you're under the all-seeing eye of your heavenly Father and you are never out of His presence because His Holy Spirit lives within you and He's an omnipresent God. So you're never alone and you're never in an unwatched situation. Think about that. And He desires truth not just where man can see it, not just in something that will hide what's really wrong but he wants it to be in the inward parts. You know, it's interesting that you can do all of the right things and your heart not be right with God. But when your heart is right with God, then you're going to do the right things. And God wants truth in the inward parts. Now, the second thing God desires that we not only have the truth there, but the truth to be expressed in wisdom 
if you'll catch that, instead of foolishness. You see, David, if anything, he had lived a very foolish life. It's a foolish thing. It's a foolish thing to fall into adultery or any kind of immorality. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs that if you commit adultery, you're destroying your own soul. Now, if I understand soul correctly, it doesn't mean your eternal being or anything. It means you're the real you, your mind, your will, your emotions, the personality that you have. Adultery and any kind of immorality, for that matter, it changes people. You ever known anyone who was caught in sexual sin? They're not happy. They don't act like themselves. And everybody eventually notices that something was wrong. I've done enough counseling and enough confrontation and enough help with people who've got involved, gotten involved in those kind of things that uh, I've heard a wife say something about her husband. Well, I knew and I could tell that something wasn't right. I've heard children say that about their parents. I've heard friends say that when they look back and say, something's been off for a long time. Because when you are involved in immorality, it changes you. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you make decisions. Some people do some really, really stupid things with money and with time and trying to cover up who they really are. And it's just really odd and it, it doesn't work for them. And it also changes them emotionally. They, don't lo they no longer have the love and the joy and the peace that comes as the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but they have shame and they have guilt and they have fear and they're desperately trying to cover everything up. And so when we walk in wisdom, we're able to see all of those things. Had David been walking in wisdom, then he would have known not to look in lust upon Bathsheba, and he would have known certainly not to act upon it, and he would have stopped all of this before it ever turned into having her husband murdered. This is something that has been devastatingly foolish to David. And that's what we all do whenever we sin against God, isn't it? And then we try to cover it up instead of confessing it, and that's a very, very unwise thing to do. David said, in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. You're not going to act like a fool anymore. You're not going to act like the fool who's covering up the sin that everyone can see. It's kind of like the old uh, fable about the emperor who has no clothes. It's like everyone can see that something wrong, but you're trying to cover it up so badly you think that you're doing a good job. And a lot of times you're overdoing it or you're underdoing it. And people look and they say something is desperately wrong. And God says, I want to clear that up. And I want to clear it up not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And I'm going to change your thinking and change your perspective. Because when truth is in the inward parts, then you also begin to act in a much more wise way. And that is much more profitable to relationships to your walk with God and just to everyday life. The third thing is notice that God's desire is for sin to be replaced with joy. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember an evangelist came to our church and he was one of those guys that had all of the sayings that everybody would quote. And he said, uh, sin thrills and then it kills. It fascinates before it assassinates. Obviously, I still remember that. And there's uh, a whole lot of truth in that. In Hebrews 11, it says that Moses 
chose to identify with the Hebrew slaves rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin in Egypt. Now, the reason we sin is because we want to sin. The Bible says in the book of James that we're all drawn away by our own lust, our desires, and we're enticed. Those are fishing terms. Someone dropped the bait and we were drawn to the bait because it looked like something good. When Eve saw the fruit, she said it was desirable to make one wise. She saw it, she wanted it. It was appealing to her. And we've got to learn that sin is something that is something that we want, something we desire, and that desire grows and we'll do anything we can to get it, and we'll do anything we can to stay in it, we'll do anything we can to cover it up, and then when we finally get to the point that we want out, many times we find that we are trapped. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. In other words, lead us away from those places where we'll be tempted, and then because we are foolish enough to fall into it, he says, deliver us from evil because only God can do that. And David is trapped. He's got to be delivered. There's nothing that he can do for himself. And he needs the wisdom of God to be in his life once again. And he needs the sin and the desire to sin, the thrill of sin, the compulsion to sin, the uh, magnetic quality of sin to be replaced with something else. What if the person who is living a double life addicted to, let's say, pornography, and they, will, they can't wait to be alone to look at it, they can't wait until uh, the time is right for them to look at it, and they will do anything they can to get into that situation. They'll risk their reputation. They'll risk their family finding out. They'll risk their kids maybe seeing it on their computer. But it's worth it because they've got to have it. Think about somebody who can't live without alcohol or drugs. And they really have some goals and some dreams, really more wishes than anything. But the problem is they can't think beyond the next drink. They can't think beyond the next fix. And so they will do anything they can, risk anything they can, spend any amount of money, and they'll lose friends and relationships and sometimes end up on the street, sadly, because they are drawn and they are driven toward their sin. Now think about the uh, situation that David is in. His desire to satisfy himself, his lust, has been so strong that it has controlled him so that he's done some things that he probably thought he would never do. He's done some things that are horrific, they're unspeakable. In fact, he says at one point in this psalm, deliver me from blood guilt. He, know, he knew that he deserved to be executed, didn't he? And this is not the David that we're familiar with in the Bible. This is not the David that kills Goliath. This is not the David that is so honorable in the way that he acts toward his arch enemy, King Saul. This is a different David. And David is essentially saying here, I don't want to be driven by my old nature. I don't want to be driven by my desire to sin. In fact, I really want the desire for sin to be replaced with something stronger, the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is our strength. You want to be uh, strong against the enemy? You want to be strong against temptation? Then you need a life filled with joy. 
and joy comes from the Holy Spirit. In fact, God even, the Apostle Paul tells us that God looks at the kingdom that he has us in differently than we do. He said, for the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. There's something about a joy-filled Christian that has the power of God, the strength of God, and they are more motivated by the joy of the Lord than they are by the fleeting pleasures of sin. Notice that David said in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop. That is the ritual that they would go through whenever a leper went in for cleansing. David is saying, Purge me from the disease of sin, the stigma of sin that I have in my life now. And he says, and if you do that, then I will be clean. He says, wash me like you would do with laundry of dirty clothes, and I shall be whiter than snow. And it's not just that David says, make my life clean. He's actually saying there, remove the stain. Kind of like if you take a shirt that you've gotten grease and oil on, and you throw it into the washing machine, and you know you put your detergent in there, and it goes through the cycle, and now you pull it out. And the shirt is clean, yet it's stained. David is saying, I not only want to be clean, but, oh Lord, if there's some way that you could remove the stain from my life so that I don't see it, so that other people don't see it everywhere I go and every time I do anything. Because it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing to try to serve God with the stain of sin. Aren't you glad that God is able even to remove the stain of sin so that you don't have to be confronted with it all of your life, every day of your life, for the rest of your life. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow means the stain is removed. Make me hear, make me hear joy and gladness. Because sometimes you can't shut your brain off. Sometimes no matter how hard you try, with the help of the enemy, you start hearing condemnation. You start hearing shame and words of, of guilt, words of fear and all of that. And David is saying to the Lord, I know all of that is going to be there, but would you do something to, for me as a favor? Make me hear not what the enemy says and not what my own mind tells me, but make me hear joy and make me hear gladness. How long had it been since David really felt the joy of the Lord? How long had it been since David woke up and he was glad he was alive? He was glad to see other people in his family. He was glad to be the king of Israel. How long had it been? I think David was probably just simply tired. And then he says something very interesting to us, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. What in the world is that all about? Well, if you ever read a book by Philip Keller, I believe his name is, he says, a shepherd looks at Psalm 23. This man who had spent time as a shepherd said that when there's a little lamb, especially a little lamb, that uh, tends to veer off and go his own way and not follow the flock and not follow the shepherd, that the shepherd sometimes will take that lamb and take that little leg and break the leg of that lamb. Well, obviously the lamb is in great pain and the lamb uh, can't walk and that stops him from going astray. But that's not the whole purpose. It's not just about keeping the lamb from going astray. 
The shepherd then will bind up that broken leg and he will carry that little lamb around his neck until the leg heals. Now during that time, the lamb is so close to the shepherd. He knows the shepherd. He gets to love the shepherd. He's familiar with the shepherd. And during that time, he loves the shepherd so that when he's taken off of the shepherd's shoulders and he's able to walk again, he wants to walk close to the shepherd. Well, remember, David was a shepherd, so he would understand that. And David knew that during this year that God was, in a sense, breaking his leg. Now David is finally to the point of healing where he says that the bones that you have broken, that they may rejoice. And why is that? Was it simply that David was never going to murder again? Well, he wasn't going to, but no, it's far greater than that. Was it just that David wasn't going to commit adultery anymore? Well, even a lost person can do that. But David wanted his life to be so close to his shepherd that those bones that had been broken might rejoice because David loved the shepherd more than he loved his sin. And fourthly, God's desire is to give you his grace. Now, let's think about grace. It's not earned, it's not deserved, and it's not based upon performance. If it was, then David would never get it again because David has done some horrible, horrible things. Grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Now, David is asking God, I mean, he doesn't use the word grace in here. That's my word. But notice what he's asking God to do. Hide your face from my sin. Now, how in the world does a holy, unknowing God ever do that? If anybody could see it, God would see it. And yet David said, hide your face from my sin. If there's ever a time where an un... Uh, pardon me, a all, an all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God would keep a record, it would be in this case, wouldn't it? I mean, David, after all, is the man anointed to be king when he's a kid by Samuel. David is the man who was able to kill the giant by the power of God. David said, you come against me with a spear and a sword. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. In other words, he told Goliath, you lose. This is the man who was preserved while he was on the run living in caves when King Saul was after him and David, was, his life was spared. This is the man who united the 12 tribes of Israel so that the kingdom is secure and all of the people of Israel are firmly behind David. This is the man who moves the capital of the kingdom to Jerusalem and there's great celebration. I mean, this is a great man. Think of all of the Psalms that he wrote. Think of all of the things that he did. And yet in this situation, what is looming in this? Of all people, of all people in the kingdom, this one man who is a man after God's own heart does something like this? And all this does is remind me, and I hope it reminds you too, that whenever we look at other people and look down our noses at them and we wonder, how could they ever do that? We need to say and mean there but for the grace of God go I. I have that same capacity. I have that same depravity to lead me down that way. Now when David is writing this and he's asking a God who knows all about him and knows exactly what he did, hide your face, blot it out, wash me. 
That's something that only God can do. There was nothing that David could do to make this happen. There was nothing David could do to make God not see his sin. This is going to have to be a gracious God choosing not to look, choosing not to bring it up, and choosing to cover it up on the record books. Now we understand this more from a New Testament sense. David, of course, didn't. But when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, his blood covers all of your sins, and they're all paid for past, present, and future. And even though you and I sin, and we confess our sins, and God forgives that sin, how is it that he would ever look at us and see us as being pure? Well, it's because he looks at us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a story that I heard a pastor tell one time that there was a, uh, a man and his boy, and they were in London, and there was a parade, and the parade was taking place in the midst of uh, some rain. And so they went inside this shop, and they were watching the parade, and there were some soldiers going by, and they were dressed in their magnificent red coats. The man looks at the boy, and he said, Oh, look at our soldiers. Aren't they wonderful in their red coats? And the little boy said, No, Dad, they're white. And the man said, No, son, they're red. They've always been red. They always will be. And the boy goes, No, 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 Dad, they're white. And the man kind of knelt down, stooped down to put his arm around his son and to point and to say, No, son, they're red. What he found out when he got down to the boy's level is the bottom part of the glass had a red tint to it, a red film. And what happened is the boy was looking through the red glass and the red filtered out the red in the soldiers' coats, and they looked white. And this preacher said that just as that dad, looking through the red glass, saw the British soldiers' coats as being white, in the same way when our Father looks through the red blood of Jesus Christ, and he sees our, our sins that Isaiah said are like scarlet, the red blood cancels out the redness of our sin, and the Father sees us white and pure and cleansed, just like David was praying for. Aren't you glad that you live on this side of the cross and you can know the theology of the New Testament to know that you are forgiven and cleansed by God? This is what David is wanting. He's wanting a clean heart. Truth in the inward parts, right? And he is understanding that he can't clean himself up. He can't blot out his iniquities. He can't hide the face of God from his sins. He's lived like that for a year, but God saw everything. What David is asking is for a kind and gracious, merciful God to do what only he can do. And I think this psalm reminds us that we forget sometimes that our lives are covered by the blood of Jesus, we're forgiven by him, and why is that? Because God so loved the world and the people in it like you and me that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the Bible tells us that we're justified, made right with God, declared not guilty, cleansed of our sin by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the song we sometimes sing in church reminds us that the blood will never lose its power, this is how God sees you. And it reminds us that the desires of God are far greater than our desires. And as much as you might desire to be free, from sin, as much as you might desire to be like Jesus, as much as you might desire to get away from the 
problems and the bondage and the scars and the pain and the hurt of your past. You've got a heavenly Father who desires that even more than you do because God is for you, not against you. And God is actively working in your life to make you like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you stumble and when you fall, sometimes it's unintentional, isn't it? Sometimes we just ignorantly fall into the traps of sin left for us by the powers of darkness. God is there, and He is your rescuer, and He is your sanctifier. And when you sin like David did, willingly walking into it, doing what you know is wrong, and blatantly defying God, God is still there, not only to confront you and bring you out, but to do these things, to make the sin to where He doesn't see it anymore because He's looking at you through the blood of Jesus, to cleanse you so that the stain of sin and the shame of sin is gone, to bring back joy and gladness into your life because He does restore the years that the locusts have eaten and He has come to give you life and to give you abundant life. And to think that God would create in you a clean heart and give you a steadfast spirit so that you don't want to go back where you've been before. You want to continue to walk with Him. And in spite of your imperfections and my imperfections, we find ourselves being ordinary people like David in the hands of an extraordinary God, a God who loves and a God who sees, a God who deals with sin, and a God also who cleanses us for sin for the glory of His name and to show the power of His grace. And that's what we need to live in day after day. So I just conclude by saying thank you for taking time to listen to this. And then just to ask you, do the desires of your heart match up with the desires of God? And do you understand that the desires of God really will benefit you? Because He does desire the best from you, but from the inside out to the glory of His name. So if we could, let's close in a word of prayer. And may the Lord bless you. And we'll pray that God will see us through this. And after we are able to get back together, can you imagine what that service is going to be like? It'll be a little taste of heaven when we're able to be together again. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this time together, we want to pray for your glory to be expressed in our lives. We want to pray that you would set us free from sin and all of its consequences and from all of the things, the destructiveness that it places into our life, into our relationships, into our family, and into our walk with you. And we want to pray that where we do sin and have sinned and will sin, thank you that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin, past, present, and future. And thank you that what David prayed for in these last few verses we looked at is what we experience as New Testament believers because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we pray that you would bless our church and help us understand that we are the church, not the building, and we can serve you and minister to you and we can worship you and we can help and serve other people wherever we are. Open our eyes, empower us that we might do so. And when it is all said and done, I pray that we would come together and see the goodness and the power of God in ways we never imagined. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, our Lord and our Savior, our King. Amen. Amen. Thank you.